When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now in verse 16, therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offsprings, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we, he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and, the Sarah, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And here's Paul's kind of synopsis. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Amen. Let's, let's pray together and ask God for his, his much-needed help. Uh, Father, as we begin afresh in Romans, uh, please, as you teach us from this text, just, just unleash your goodness in the gospel. Heighten our awareness of it and let it overflow. And let your goodness overflow as your word is preached. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. We're going to get right to it, shall we? Uh, We're returning, as I said, to our studies in Romans. We're looking at the latter verses of Romans chapter 4. It's going to take two sermons because this morning, in many ways, it's going to be kind of a bird's eye view. And what I mean by that is you're listening to it. We're going, to, we're going to just travel over the first few chapters of Roman like a high-altitude airplane. And then towards the end, we're going to come down. We'll come down pretty fast. Um, but I think as it all comes together, um, you'll, you'll see why it's being done that way. And we're going to work under three headings. The first one is an encouraging review. The second is a mild correction. And a third is a, a happy ending, part one. So we got a brief or encouraging review, a mild correction, and then a happy ending. First of all, then, an encouraging review. And what that is is the first three and a half chapters of Romans. And we are being very, very purposeful here because it's been a while since we've been in Romans. And if you've been with us in our studies in the previous chapters, after what we've just read, and you combine the two, it could seem that the Apostle Paul somewhat is overstating some things as he writes because he writes so much about our sin and he writes so much about the doctrine of justification in light of it. Indeed, he has not been telling his readers to do something. Rather, he has been telling his readers to put their faith in someone. 
And as you might imagine how that could be unsettling if a person who, who relies on their doing things for God uh, and making that foundational to their relationship with God and making them feel good about God. So as long as they're able to do stuff, then they feel good about their relationship with God. But if they don't, then I think you see the point. So the doctrine of justification in light of our sin is the foundational truth of the gospel, which means, among other things, if you get this wrong, then you get everything else about the gospel wrong and how a person relates to a holy, perfect God whom sin uh, cannot be near. And so you ask the question, what is justification? And the answer is, justification is a gracious act of a loving, truthful, just, and holy God who declares or pronounces a sinner to be once and forever righteous and perfect in God's sight only by faith in Christ because Christ who is perfect, who is just, who is righteous substituted himself for ourselves to pay the penalty of our sins on the cross. Meaning a person who repents in childlike faith just, and just casts themselves under that truth is perfect in God's sight No work needed to secure this. No ritual needed to secure this. No no, no, um, religious thing because it is a gift from God, but it's given by faith alone. So when a person relies on this truth and, and kind of builds their life on it day by day, this does so much to change the fundamental direction of their life and their living and their thinking and, and, their, and their planning and this overwhelming sense of security and value and felt love and, and love for others as well, unattached to, to earthly circumstances or even your personal performance. But one of the main things it does is answers probably one of the great questions of the ages. It was a question asked by Job near the beginning of civilization. It was a question asked by very religious and very refined people uh, to Jesus in the Gospels. And their question was something like this. How can a person be right before God? And that's the ultimate question that eats into our souls. It's behind every other question when it comes to our existence, when it comes to our meaning. You know, why are we here? Where are we headed? Why was I born? Will I make it? Will I be be okay? And do I even matter? So if you know that you will stand before Almighty God in the judgment, how can I know it will go well then? And how can I know it can be well now? And the Bible's answer, it is so clear and it is so succinct and just oozes with assurance for the Christian. Indeed, it's so good and it's so clear that Christians in early generations would speak of this damnable doctrine of doubt. And what the damnable doctrine of doubt was is when people would try to add something to the gospel so they could add to their assurance and remove their doubt. It wasn't true then and it isn't true now. How can a person be right before God? How can a person know his favor, his blessing, his care, make sense of life in a fallen world, make sense of their own fallenness? And then at the end, be ushered safely into God's heaven. How? Well, we'll do what Paul says in Romans 4.3. What does Romans say? What does the letter of the Romans say? And here's the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Because the righteous, chapter 1, verse 17, live by faith. Faith in what God has done in Christ. 
So even though in one way or another we sin against all God's commandments, haven't kept them as we should, and still fight against them, and even though we judge others for not keeping them, thereby mocking the riches of God's kindness and his tolerance and patience with other people because he wants people to repent, all of which he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to chapter 2, verse 4. And even though by nature there's no one righteous, chapter 3, verse 10, and therefore the good we try to do to earn God's favor, chapter 3, verse 12, is useless because it's self-serving, God, without any merit of our own, because of sheer grace, chapter 3, verses 21 and following, backed up by the Old Testament, God grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and obedience of Christ as if we have never sinned, nor ever been a sinner, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. And all we need to do is accept this gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Hard end, says Romans 3.22. In fact, I'm quoting, this righteousness from God comes through faith to all who believe. And you see, that's the gospel. That is the good news. This is Paul's message in the opening chapters of Romans. However, most of you know that history teaches and the New Testament teaches the temptation is for some people to think, wait a minute, Paul is, you know, tilting way over to grace. Grace, grace, grace sounds like, uh, sounds way too good and way too much. And he better balance it with a bit more works, 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 because that seems like a more balanced view of the gospel. But is it? Is it? You know, so people might say, oh yeah, you know, try grace, grace, grace running a family. To which you could reply, you mean like God does with his family? You see, grace never has meant to do what you like and it's cool with God. Grace means you have done what you like. On occasion, you still do. And Jesus died for all that petty selfishness. And therefore, the great basis of our assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but rather how unshakable God's heart is set on us. I'm going to repeat that. (laughs) The great basis of our assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakable his heart is set on us. And this means that God's love for us is utterly realistic. It's based on prior knowledge and, and future knowledge of the worst things about us, so that there's nothing about the Christian which will disillusion God And somehow God will pull away his grace. John 10, 28, I give you eternal life. No one will snatch you out of my hand. And you see, the gospel is not simply making uh, bad people good, but making dead people alive. So in the gospel, we're not remodeled. We're made brand new. And the only good work in the gospel is Jesus' work. Now, a Christian's good work are certainly an outcome of the gospel. But they're not in the gospel. Because you think about it, and, and we need to really think about it, at least two things could be said. One, Paul will say, since God saves people through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ alone, that's chapter 3, verse 23, by faith alone, if you work for your salvation in any way, then you can boast about it. I mean, I think someone said something like, we are justified by faith, not by our faithfulness. 
And that's important. So Paul says, if, if you could work for your salvation, then you could boast in some way about your salvation. Chapter 3, verse 27, Paul's question then in the real gospel, where is the boasting? It's a rhetorical question. It means there can be no boasting except in Christ alone. That's the first thing. And the second thing, it's necessary for us to realize that behind Paul's pen and these opening chapters is the spirit of the living God. It's the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the letter, meaning this is how God intends to speak. And this is how he, God, intended for us to capture all the beautiful, uh, the magnificent, the, all the nuances and the multi-sided goodness of the grace of God in the gospel. And specifically, this great foundational, you know, you get this wrong, you get the gospel wrong, your life may grow up a bit tilted if you get this wrong, in this doctrine of justification, which takes up some 40% of the letter to the Romans. In other words, it's something like cooking a really, really good meal. And when you cook it, as Julia, Julia Childs once said, you always need to start out with a larger pot than what you think you need. And you see, we need more grace than we can ever imagine. I mean, even in the Old Testament, there was provision made for the forgiveness of sins that people didn't even know that they committed because people could be so blind to their sin. So we need a huge pot <laughs> And we have it in justification. God's promise that wherever our sin is abounding, his grace will always much more abound. So the doctrine of justification just overflows with good news. News that we can't make ourselves right, but God in Jesus Christ has declared us and made us right. That in the gospel, God was the sacrifice. And that means no one needs to bring one and no one needs to be one. Not for redemption. Not for salvation. It all relies on a sovereign act of a gracious God in the person of his son who loves people and the faith of the sinner in that love. That's our first point, an encouraging review. This is one of the great blessings of the gospel. <laughs> Jesus gives you rest and peace like no one else can. That's what's so beautiful about it. Second thing, then, is a mild correction. Well, obviously, then, as you think about it, faith in Christ is central to a person's standing with God. And so if you look down in your Bibles and you read verse 18, against all hope, Abraham believed. And verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. You keep that and you remember that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were very, very old. So a person reads that, takes it out of context, including verse 16, that is why, and that salvation depends on faith, in order that the promise of salvation may rest on grace and be guaranteed. So you take that out. If you, if you take it out of context, and here's the mild correction. If you would go into a sermon about believing and having faith, and if your faith is strong enough, and if your faith lasts long enough, it may look like all hope is lost, it's not, you just, cut, you just keep believing. You know, don't stop believing. And if you don't stop believing, then you can get whatever it is you are believing for. Don't do that here. Because if you try to do that here, you'll be wrong. First, this is an illustration of saving faith in God, in God. Second, let's be rational here. Both Christians 
and non-Christians have those faith stories where, you know, they just kept believing and they only had $10 in their pocket and they kept believing and they kept uh, working and they slept on a couch in a one-room studio, but they kept believing and even though people told them to quit and they had a really tough or terrible or traumatic things happen to them along the way, nevertheless, they kept believing and, and presto, they made it. They made it. So they built the company. They got a wife or a husband. Uh, They got some wonderful thing. Faith. They hung on. Bam. Kept believing. But again, you can't do that here in Romans 4. Paul's going to make the point that it's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith which saves you because this section here is all about our salvation. Our salvation, about saving faith. It's not about personal things that you may or may not be believing God for. And, and that is not to say that those things are wrong in and of themselves. I would be wrong to make any judgment on any of them. And it's not to say that their stories are not in, you know, inspiring. They are very inspiring. And they um, are marvelous. But it's just not the gospel. It's not true to the context here. And what they have happened, listen carefully, doesn't happen for many other people with just as much faith as they have. But in the gospel, verse 16, there is a guarantee for all who believe instantaneously all the benefits of what it means to be a child of God, a ginormous amount of grace equally to all. So God doesn't have any unbalance with his kids. So you see, if a a person if they build their relationship with God only on something like, okay, if I have faith in God and I'm going to have really strong faith and if I have enough faith and he's going to do something for me in the hope that by hanging on, they'll be able to secure God's favor and get that blessing, get that dream. Then if they succeed, history in the Bible teaches us it could, it could lead to pride, smugness or judgmentalism if life you know, goes well or it could be anger and self-pity if their life does not go well. And this is the kind of thing which can frankly make our soul go sour and turn bitter and become so disillusioned with God and with Christianity. We can become so jealous. You know, Marsha got it. Why didn't I? Jimmy got it. Why didn't I? And again, loved ones, this is about saving faith. And saving faith doesn't even look at itself. It keeps its eye on on God. So the idea, again, of hanging on in faith to make our dreams come true has nothing to do with with what's being said here. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I am saying that's not what's being said here. In fact, if you read other portions of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11 at the very end, it could probably help us. It's it's been titled, you know, Heroes of the Faith Hall of Fame. So, So listen to some heroes of the faith. Many became refugees with nothing but sheepskin or goatskin to cover them. They lost everything and yet were spurned and ill-treated by a world that was too evil to see their worth. They lived as vagrants in the desert, on the mountains, or in caves, or holes in the ground. All these won a glowing testimony to their faith. Their faith in God. Their faith in God, which by God's grace saved them from their sin. So I hope you see the difference. I hope you see the difference. 
That's our second point then, a mild correction. And then our third point then is a happy ending. Now, in order to illustrate what saving faith looks like, because this is an illustration, Paul in Romans 4 picks, up a, picks a model of faith, and somewhat surprisingly, he picks up an Old Testament person. In fact, he's not even a Jew, but a Gentile by the name of Abraham. Abraham is the model of saving faith. Because remember, Abraham, Abraham was plucked out of a Gentile world. And that would be surprising to Jewish people, the fact that Paul was using them as a model, because they believed that salvation comes by works, by law-keeping, you know, by ceremony and by ritual. But Paul has been saying, no, 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 salvation comes by faith, and Abraham is the model of salvation by faith. Because what we learned a while back is Abraham was thought to be, by the Jews, he was like the poster boy for righteousness. And he was the one that if anyone could be right before God because of his morality, it was Abraham. And they thought that he lived a life where he did essentially everything right. And therefore, by his works, Abraham was accepted by God. So they taught then, be good like Abraham was good and you can be with God. And having gone beyond their Old Testament scriptures, delusional, if you would, they began to paint a picture of Abraham, which was untrue. And that what Paul does, in fact, if your Bible's open, you'll see this in chapter 4, verse 3. He is asked them, what does the Scripture say about Abraham? Like, open up your Bible, and what does it say? And then he says to them in chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham was not justified by his works. Even his faith then was not a work. If it was, he could have something to boast about. But, quoting from the Old Testament, he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And all that is said to make the point that all a person's works, all their personal righteousness, past, present, future, are utterly useless in salvation. Our righteousness, what is it, Isaiah 64, 6, is as filthy rags. Paul says it again, Philippians 3, 8, at great length. He literally says that when it comes down to the best of his achievements, this is Paul, I, I count them but dung that I may gain Christ. And so it's not that good works are bad, but they are just useless when it comes to try and secure salvation or secure some kind of advantage or position with God. And I think most of us will be honest enough to admit that by nature, we sometimes do that. So with that in mind, the story of Abraham is the story of the nature of saving faith. So Abraham began with the name Abram, A-B-R-A-M. Abram means father of many. And so no one was more inappropriately named than Abraham because he was the father of nobody. He was at the time of God calling him, he was childless. So at the age of 60, God comes to Abraham, Abram and he called him out of you know, idol worship and out of the city of Ur. And he said, go to this land, which I'm going to show you. And Abram obeyed. He left his home, he left his people, he took his wife, and he was on this journey with his servants to an utterly unknown destination, believing God. Now, on the way to the land of promise, he stops in a place called Haran. He stays there for 15 years, and God told him there that, and he would have been around 75 years old, that he's going to bless the world through him. He would bless the world through Abram and through Abram's seed, but again, he had no seed, he had no child, and yet he remained as a father then, absolutely childless. So he heads to the country by faith. 
He doesn't know where that is. He keeps moving. He keeps believing, looking for God to fulfill his promise. And it's all by faith. Eventually, he arrives in Canaan. And when he arrives in Canaan, his faith is tested again and again. Still no child. And I want you to listen to what Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he said this many years ago, something which I think will help us understand what Abram was was, um, enduring, we'll say. This is what he says. Now, Abram was strategically located along the roads of the camel camel caravans that carried the commerce of the ancient world between Egypt and the north and east. He owned wells and his flocks and herds were great. And when the caravans of the rich merchants came into the land, they stopped at Abram's wells. The servants of Abraham took care of the needs of the camels. Food was sold to the travelers. And in the evening time, the merchants would have come to Abram's tent to pay their respect. The questions of custom would have followed. Abram, how old are you? How long have you been there? But maybe the most interesting question that ever would have been asked would be, how is it that you have the name Abram? How many children do you have? It must have happened a hundred times. Maybe it happened a thousand times. And every time more galling than the time before. Oh, father of many, congratulations. And how many sons do you have? And the humiliating answer came back time and time again. None. Many a time there must have been this half-concealed snort of humor at the incongruity of the name and the fact that there were no children to back up such a name. Abram must have steeled himself for the question and the reply hated the situation with great bitterness. There must have been many conversations on the subject. Who was sterile? Was it Abraham? Was it Sarah? Was the patriarch somehow deficient? He had no children and his name was the father of many. And you see, that's the point Paul is making here. And he's using Abraham as an illustration. Abraham had nothing in himself to add to the promise which God had made. He couldn't do anything. I mean, I'm sure he tried, but still no child. It's an illustration. I mean, right away, it's like, how much righteousness did you need to have before you became a Christian? Before, by faith, God saved you, you see? And so, as you know, they get kind of desperate so Sarah, Abram's wife, arranges for a surrogate, Hagar, Hagar, excuse me, a, a slave woman. She gets pregnant from Abram and he finally has an heir, 86 years old. He can finally say, I'm the son of someone. But that child is born outside the promise. It was born of natural powers, human arrangement, works. And so when he asked the name, he could say, I am Abram, I have one son. He could say, I did it. But. 13 years later, Abraham is 99 years older and he's feeble and Sarah was 90. And the promise was reminded and it came through Isaac, right? Through Isaac. This is not the son of natural powers. This is the son of a promise. And God gave him the promise of an heir, the son of promise, and a son not of his natural ability, not of natural works or human manipulation, but the son of, a promise. In fact, look at verse 19. Abram's body was as good as dead. And at that point, Abram got a name change. He went from Abram, the father of many, to Abraham, meaning the father of the multitudes. Now here's the point. Ishmael is the son of human effort. 
Isaac is the son of grace, divine provision of God. Ishmael's son is the son born in the usual way. And he's representative of all those who experience natural birth. And when we experience natural birth, we come into this world as natural born sinners. Trying to, to work our way out of everything. On the other hand, Isaac is a son born of faith by a miracle. And is an illustration of all those who receive spiritual birth. Uh, born again. One is a covenant of works, the other a covenant of grace. One is a slave, the other is free. Now this may sound very convoluted and difficult, but it's not. It is marvelous. It is simple. It is a simple illustration. It is is a simple analogy. Ishmael, Ishmael equals flesh, human effort, human work, natural powers to try to secure righteousness with God to try to secure your position with God, which is the, is the essence of every other religion. Self-justification. Even Christianity sometimes can lean towards that way. And all that does is it brings a person into bondage. However, Isaac illustrates promise in God's power, grace from God. Isaac is a picture of the gospel. Isaac is connected to the promise and to the freedom being liberated from sin by the fulfillment of that promise and by an act of God. And again, it's such a simple contrast. Human effort, divine promise. Human effort works, divine promise, grace. And like the story of Christianity, the child of promise, grace, and the child of of human effort works, they're always at odds with each other. Whether it's internal, external, it's always at odds. Grace works, grace works, grace works. Even to the point, think about this. When Isaac is taken to the altar, remember that part of the story? And the child, the promised child, he looks as good as dead. In, in my mind, I was like, grace, grace, grace. You know, I, I knew it was too good to be true. true. It lasted for a while. And we had a pretty nice time, but it's all over now. But what happened? What happened? If you know the story, what happened? God says what? I will provide the sacrifice. And so Christians, we are like Abraham. We do battle with indwelling sin. Sometimes we do it by works. Sometimes we do it by grace. But at the end of the day, God always provides the sacrifice. He provided the sacrifice, if you would, in Jesus once and for all. And therefore, all is always well. We believe, and therein we are given, we are credited, we are imputed the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul in another letter says that we have the righteousness of God, always. Now, we're going to end, just let me end just with a few questions. And be honest, Do, do you live in the beauty and the wonder of of your sins being forgiven? Do do you live in the beauty and the wonder that God has given you the very righteousness of his son and so that when he sees you all the time, he sees his son, his son's perfection, his son's obedience? And do you live in the beauty and the wonder of other Christians are seen by God in the exact same way? And if you can answer those questions, then answer, what is your tone and your temperament with yourself and with God, with others in the world or others who are Christian. 
in light of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And you know, one of the things I want to say to you is geez, it doesn't always have to be so horrible, such a struggle, such, such a downer. Jesus came to give us rest, real, real rest. So Abraham lived just the kind of way that we live in the middle of a whole lot of repeated assurances from God to encourage him, to encourage us. A 99-year-old Abraham, a 90-year-old Sarah. No way. No way. A promise. A child from God. Abraham believed God and it was chapter 4, verse 22. You see it there? Credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, an illustration of how one becomes and how one remains a Christian. And because God's speciality, as he calls things that are not, chapter 4, verse 17, as though they were, you and I are not righteous outside of Jesus Christ. We are not interested in God outside of Jesus Christ. We want to save ourselves by our works, to show, you know, that we can do it or that we are better than others. We can't. We can't. But this is what God does. He calls things which are not as though they were. So I don't know, you may be 17, you may be 70. I don't care if you're a thousand years old and you've lived every second of your life selfishly in sin. It doesn't matter. You could be a thousand times worse than you are right now. You are no match for God's grace. You're no match for God's grace. So, so believe in Christ now and you are just before God, just like that. Ransomed, restored, forgiven. A child of God. A child of God. Which is the point Paul is making. Again, there's no way Abraham and Sarah should have had a child. They just couldn't do it. But God made the promise and he kept it and he did it And Abraham believed God. And Abraham was credited righteousness. There's no way you and I can make ourselves right with God and maintain a living relationship with him. But God made a promise that whoever believes in him can have eternal life, a new life with him starting now. The gospel depends on a God who doesn't depend on you. I read Spurgeon this morning and the very last thing I read was God will have no strength used in his battles but the strength he himself imparts. And you know, you'll never celebrate grace and you'll never celebrate the doctrine of justification as much as you should when you think you are more personally righteous than you actually are. But if you know your sin, this is what's so beautiful about the gospel, if you know your sin, then you can celebrate your Savior. Thank you for your attention. We have more to say in Romans 4, and all spared and Lord willing, we'll we'll do that next week. Let's, Let's pray together. God and Father, your kindness 
to us in Jesus Christ is, is overwhelming. In Christ alone, we are justified. You cover us with the perfect righteousness of your beloved Son. Every bitter thought we entertain, every evil deed we've done and still do, every harsh and unkind and false word we've ever spoken and will speak in the future, all are completely replaced with the specific goodness and the specific obedience of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. Your compassion towards us and our weakness just just melts our hearts and causes us, God, in our right mind to just give you praise and glory for such grace and for such goodness. Father, we pray that in these days we would appreciate this truth and live right and live to the praise of your glory in light of it. Now, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain on all who believe, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.